0: Alrighty, um, so before I, I forget, I want to just kind of lay out a couple of things that are going to happen over the next few weeks. Tonight, we're, we're obviously in, uh, we're still in Isaiah, and we're going to be in Isaiah for a couple, couple more weeks, just dealing with some of the weird things. I want to draw your attention to the weird things and just sort of expose you to uh, the wonders of Hebrew poetry and how fantastic and confusing, befuddling, you might say, that it can be. Um, that said, next week we won't be meeting, so there won't be any uh, Wednesday night uh, next week. I will be in Austin, Texas, uh, learning how to preach, and I know most of you are thinking, thank God, finally somebody <laughs> is somebody is going to teach him. Uh, maybe they'll get through to him. So I'm going to be there at a conference, or it's actually technically a workshop in Austin, and so I'll be out of town, won't be here to teach, and so we're... we're Wednesday night won't happen next week. So just know that, but then we'll resume regular scheduled programming um, the following Wednesday. Alright? So we're good on that. And so we'll pick back up in Isaiah. Uh, then tonight we are in Isaiah 14. And here's what I want you to do. I didn't include Isaiah 14 in the verses. So I want you to just open your Bible to Isaiah 14. A lot of the other verses that we that are mentioned in the in the packet are going to be included in the packet. Uh, but Isaiah 14, I figured, let's just lay eyes on the actual text of Scripture so you know I ain't jiving you, okay? That I ain't trying to trick you or confuse you or uh, mess around here, okay? So, um, the, the central thing that, we're, that one of the first things I want to tackle in Isaiah and one of the most kind of confusing, I think, passages, maybe it's not so much confusing as it is often misinterpreted, I think, uh, passages is Isaiah 14, and um, you can see in verse 12, if you go to verse 12, and um, I want to I just read through it, that way we can see at least the first few verses here from 12 on, uh, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit, like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers never more be named. Prepare slaughter for his sons, become because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world. With cities. Um, okay. Um, so this, this passage uh, describes someone that Isaiah calls uh, the day star. He refers to them as a day star or son of the dawn in verse 12 um, and says that they, he describes them as falling from heaven. And he says the reason in verse 13, he describes what it is, and their reason, he says, is what? Verse 13, you can answer this. What does he say? What's that? I I will ascend to heaven. I will will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. So he's brought low, he's kicked out of his position as Daystar, Son of the Dawn, uh, for pride. He asc- wanted to ascend above the created order and, and make himself like God. Y- you may have heard that before, we will become like God. Uh, that's, that's the lie all the way back at the beginning of, of the Bible in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Adam essentially said the same thing, ascend above the created order, I will become like God, uh, knowing good and evil, at least Adam and Eve both thought that and I think probably most of you and I know this is true because when we went through this passage a few weeks ago uh I I asked what is what's being talked about here and most everybody said well Satan uh in verse 12 that uh Satan was the topic and I think that's a no. Nope, it double clicked on me there we go um did I did the first one show the first one didn't show it double-clicked on me the first time is what it was. It single-clicked on me. All right, if, if it does that, just let me know. Uh, so pride is that first blank. Uh, all the, the spoilers, just, it's just it's all it does. It just spoils it. Hold on, I'm getting there. St- one step at a time, Shannon. Uh, hold on, just a second, just a second. Um, so first, first things first pride. All right. His, what he said in his, his heart, I will ascend. I, I'm, he, he's basically uh, kicked out of heaven for pride. All right. I really got I'm just going to turn around each time just to make sure it doesn't double click on me because that gets confusing, especially when we talk about this. All right. Okay. Um, now, one of the common interpretations of this passage is that the person being referred to by Isaiah is Satan. And, um, so how, how does, how do we get all these pieces? Let's, let's put together the pieces that we've come to understand over the years, all right? What we've come to believe, anyway, about this passage. The, the translation of Daystar, so Isaiah is written in Hebrew, all right? And from that, we get the translation Daystar from the word that's used there in Hebrew, which I'll talk about in just a second. When the Hebrew text was translated into Latin, the Latin translation of that same word is Lucifer. All right? Tracking with me so far? Okay. Now, once the interpretation of this passage became Satan being the one that's in view here, then Lucifer got taken from the Latin and used as a proper name for Satan himself. Tracking with me so far? Seems like a confusing way to do things, doesn't it? D- does seem like a little. And, and how many, and now just be honest, how many, I'm not setting anybody up, and I'm not really even here to have much of a debate. How many have heard since you were little the name for Satan is Lucifer? What's interesting is that in the New Testament, uh, John gives a description of the devil. And he calls him the dragon who is called the devil and Satan. He doesn't say the word Lucifer anywhere in there. He doesn't say Daystar. He doesn't say Son of the Dawn. He doesn't say... He doesn't have any reference back to Isaiah here when he talks about how Satan is referred. What, what, what Satan is. And so what's Kind of strange is that that interpretation for as Satan here kind of came into the mainstream. And that's how we, a lot of people have understood it. In fact, I was taught that as a kid, that when we get to 12, that, that's what we're seeing here. Satan warred with God, was kicked out of heaven, and so on and so forth. And a lot of that is, there's a whole bunch of passages that come into that. What's interesting, though, if you back up in the passage, now we're, we're still looking at Isaiah. You've got your eyes on the text, all right? Go back in chapter 14, all the way back up to verse 3. Um, and it says he says this, When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve. Pause right there. What is he talking about there? When the Lord has given you rest from all of that stuff. What is that stuff that he's describing there? You know? What is it? Yeah, yeah. Ba- what happened in Babylon? That's right. When they were exiled. So he's saying, this is Isaiah. Remember, we've been through the whole book of Isaiah. This is Isaiah looking into the future. We talked about that. Isaiah is a really l- lengthy, in terms of chronology, very lengthy because he's. Talking when they go when the northern kingdom goes to Assyria, which is a hundred and some years before Judah ever goes to Babylon. And now Isaiah is here going reaching way into the future and saying when you are done with that. All right, when you when the Lord gives you rest from that, you return. What does he say in verse four? You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Now, why would they take up a taunt against the king of Babylon? What is Isaiah telling them? Not only that the Lord's going to give you rest, what is he telling them about the king of Babylon? He, he's, going to be, he's going to take him out. He's going to kill him. He, he's going to be dead. And, and, and right after that, this is the taunt. What, so you can even see, m- probably most of your Bibles have, a, have it inset from verse, uh, the end of verse 4 all the way probably till 21, through 21, you have that kind of inset. What it's describing, for, or what it's telling you there, the, the little, all the stylistic things like that, it, that's not original to the text. It's just the, the makers of your Bible are kind of helping you see the part that's differentiated. This is a part that's quoted. It's like a limerick or a poem. They're helping to kind of differentiate for you there. So he says, how the, oppress, how the oppressor has ceased. The insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked. The scepters of... So pi- just picture this for just a second. Here is Babylon taking the southern kingdom off into captivity. And then at some point, Isaiah is telling them, Look, it's not always going to be that way. Eventually, the Lord is going to smash Babylon. And he's going to give you rest. And what's going to happen in the end is all the things that went against you are going to turn around on your oppressor. And now you're going to take up a taunt against them as he marches on down to Sheol. When you march down to Sheol, when you go to Sheol, what are you? Dead, right? And and it even says in the passage that we read, like, he doesn't even have a grave. There's not even a grave for you. You're going to be kicked out of even the graves. You're going to be, you're how the oppressor has said, oh, look, you were this mighty guy, and now you're thrown out. You're not, you're not there anymore. So, what's interesting is that the referent, we call that a referent, what, what is verse 12 referring to when he says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day starts on the dawn. We don't have an update past verse 4 that he's talking about somebody else. Right, So we, we, we get to verse 12, and he's continuing the taunt. The taunt is, is still on. There's no change. In fact, if you look in the section as a whole, Isaiah is going from one nation to the next nation. So you can see that very clearly in verse 28. Uh, you can just see the headings at the top. That, that's probably good enough. It says, an oracle concerning Philistia, the Philistines. Uh, Chapter 15, an oracle concerning Moab. you probably see that there. Um, Let's see. uh, Yeah, so anyway, there's... Oh, then in 17, an oracle concerning Damascus, an oracle concerning Cush in 18, that's uh, Ethiopia, an oracle concerning Egypt in chapter 19, um, and then obviously Babylon again in 21, uh, Egypt and Cush again in 20, uh, and then finally Jerusalem in 22. Remember, th- this whole run of passages is Isaiah pointing the finger at each nation around and saying, you got some of the blame, you got some of the blame, you got some of the blame. This is how God's going to come in and judge you. And so the, the referent, as we're looking at the text itself and relying on what is the Bible, I don't care what people have said in the past, I don't care about any of that, just what does, is the Bible actually saying here, the referent doesn't change it is Babylon he's talking about. And you're taking up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Um, and so then we have every expe- reason to believe that in verse 12, we're, we're continuing on with Babylon, and he's describing him as having ascended to the heavens. He thought he was a god and basically referred to himself as a god. Look how many people I've put under my thumb, and, and uh, look how bad I am. And all of a sudden, he is brought low. In fact, he's killed. And, and that happens, actually. Cyrus comes in and kills uh, the king of Babylon and releases the Jews back, back home. Babylon becomes nothing, is laid to waste and is wiped off the face of the earth and is still nothing. So all of his words are coming true. He, what he's saying is true. And then further, if you get on down the passage a little bit, um, it, he, he calls him a man. Uh, he, he, uh, it says in 16, Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? So, so who is it we're referring to here? It's the king of Babylon is who the referent is. Okay, that seems very clear. What's interesting then is then, how did we come to sa- this Satan being the referent here? It actually didn't come from the Bible, believe it or not. It came from three prominent places, and it came very early on, actually, in biblical history. This may be interesting to you, it may not be. Shoot me if it's not. That's fine. Um, so, uh, the first was Tertullian, who is a church father, uh, probably about a third generation church father um, Tertullian was and he was somewhere between the. he was born somewhere close to 145 I put the earliest date there some think it's later uh, he died in about 220 AD um, he has a, a reference to this passage as he's describing he's arguing against somebody and he, he has a reference to this passage and he says this must be Satan okay that's basically how he, how he puts it to him this, this, this has to be the devil and um, he goes on to be a little bit more confusing where you almost sort of think that maybe he, I- he does understand that it's the king of Babylon. But anyway, he says this must be the devil. Tertullian, the church fathers are, are interesting. I revere them a great deal and I've, I've read all of them. I love them. I, part of my major in seminary was on uh, early church history and love Tertullian. But you gotta be careful because towards the end of their life, sometimes they just take a turn and he's one of them. Uh, his early writings are fantastic. They're unbelievable. They feel like they were written yesterday except for the language. But, um, but the, he And he was an ardent defender of the faith. And then towards the end of his life, he sort of went crazy. Um, well, and, and, and honestly, in fairness, there may be some of that. We're looking at some of these church fathers, and at the end of their life, they kind of take a turn, and you're like, well, you know, maybe it's a, something nowadays that would be, they would, be brought into medical care and things like that, but back then they weren't, and so there you go. Um, I don't know if that was the case for Tertullian or not, but he sort of went a little bit off the deep end towards the end of his life, but early on he was pretty, but but even in the passage where he's talking about this, he's speculating. He's saying, surely this is what that's got to be, but he doesn't really give much of an explanation for why he thinks that. Um, Oh, sorry, I forgot they were all on the same slide. Um, Origen, who is also a church father, comes just after Tertullian just a little bit, he he regularly refers to Satan as Lucifer, which I take it that's where he gets this is from the Latin translation of the Hebrew text there, and he just he calls Satan he routinely refers to Satan as Lucifer on a, on a couple of occasions, but then most prominently where that interpretation comes from is actually from John Milton in Paradise Lost, where he refers to uh, c- the city city and proud seat of Lucifer, so by allusion called of that bright star to Satan paragon. So he, he has obviously borrowed from the language from Isaiah and taken that as the interpretation. And so those three sources are the most prominent, and the interpretation that this is Satan all of a sudden, it, it comes mainly from those three sources. And then a lot of people have, have talked about that afterwards, and have, have kind of preached that that's the, um, the meaning. But Once we start to understand a little bit more about Babylonian culture, we can actually see what Isaiah is doing here. And it's very clever, the way he's describing the fall of Babylon. He's actually gone into Babylonian literature and has helped to explain to Babylon the way you're going to fall in a way that makes perfect sense to Babylon. Now, you know, um, a, a preacher in Alabama will sometimes stand up and will give an illustration that is related to Alabama football, and and right, and it, it to, all, to much to the chagrin of all the ladies, most of the ladies in the, in the congregation who are not sports fans, or even the guys who are not sports fans. are like, I don't care anything about Alabama football. But the point is, when the, when you make an illustration or a connection to something that's culturally familiar, it helps you to understand and to lay hold of it. Right, uh, Isaiah is doing the exact same thing here. Um, the, the Hebrew word used for day star in this passage, and I, I don't usually call out the Hebrew words because who really cares, but it, it helps, okay, a little bit here, I think maybe, maybe just a tad, is halel, okay, and it's written right there for you. You don't have to write it down. Uh, the Hebrew word used for day star in this passage is halel, and what's apparent is that Isaiah is making use of a Babylonian myth about the planet that we know of as venus have you ever seen venus in the sky you can you can see it it's the brightest quote-unquote star in the sky right we know it as a planet but it it, it's basically the brightest star in the sky they've known this for many years but halel actually means bright shiner it's the sun of the dawn it's it's up there even in the early morning as the sun is beginning to rise you can still see venus shining brighter than everything else in the entire sky. And so according to the myth, the, the Babylonians have a, a myth, a story about Venus and how it came to be and its, its whole kind of mythology, its origin, if you will, or whatever. Um, according to the myth, Halel, this bright star, Venus, whatever the Babylonians also called it, um, this star uh, aspired to make himself king over the sun, exalting himself over the sun, um, by scaling the ramparts of the heavenly city, and eventually, in the end, Venus is conquered by the sun, and and cast down, relegated to second fiddle, as it were. Um, And so, within the biblical context, what Isaiah is doing is basically taking the same myth that the Babylonians have about Venus and repurposing it and reapplying it to a different referent. And so he's basically saying that the planet Venus, that story you have about the planet Venus is your story, king of Babylon. You have thought to exalt yourself over the sun. But what he also does then is he takes the sun and replaces it and puts who in the place? God. You've sought to exalt yourself over God's created order. You've sought to make yourself God. So it's not Venus now trying to conquer the sun. It's the king of Babylon trying to conquer God. And what is in the end is going to happen? You, king of Babylon, just like your myth lays out, you also are going to be kicked out. You're also going to be relegated to second fiddle. You're going to be Kicked out of, of heaven. And so you've sought to exalt yourself over the one true God, Yahweh, but he is going to bring about your downfall. All right? Go ahead. Gotcha. Let me back up. No, not entirely. So we're talking about the king of Babylon. All right? Because Isaiah says, here's king of Babylon. This is what I'm going to tell you. All right? You're going to be laid low. How it got to be Satan is really anybody's guess. The term day star in Latin is Lucifer. Along the way, people took that Lucifer and just applied it randomly to Satan. How they made the connection between Lucifer and the devil, your guess is as good as mine. Does not mean devil. It means means light bearer. bearer. That's it. Light bearer. And that's what Hillel means. Light bearer of light. So it's it's a Latin translation of bearer of light. the, The bright Shining star in the sky, and so how the term Lucifer got applied to the devil. Anybody's guess. <laughs> 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 I didn't even think about day star down the street. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't even. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's part of the confusion. I'm sorry about that. The, how it got from, from Daystar, Hallel, Lucifer, translated to this must be the devil. Those three sources are the earliest and most often repeated that we have of that connection, and then it just got disseminated. And that's. But, but what I'm my point is, look at the Bible. He never says that never does he say that. In fact, in the New Testament, when the author goes, Satan, the, the dragon, who is also called, he doesn't say Lucifer in there. He doesn't say Daystar. He doesn't even use the Hebrew word that's used here in, in Isaiah at all to refer to the devil. Now, We're going to talk about the devil being kicked out of heaven. We're going to talk talk about those things, and I'm not saying any of those things are off the the table necessarily. This is not telling you that. This is talking about the king of Babylon. This isn't the history of how the devil came to be and all of those kinds of things. There's lots of things we know about the devil. There's a lot of things we don't know about the devil. It just none of it comes from Isaiah 14, all right? (laughs) That's, That's all I'm saying. Does that make sense? No, 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 yeah. Yeah, so the question was, is he making a parallel, drawing a parallel between the two? H- here's what I'll say, and it, it, I'm going to kind of throw a bone to the camp of, man, I really want this to be devil. Uh, and <laughs> if anybody's in that camp, uh, I'm going to throw a bone here in a little bit where there, 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 there may be some parallels. What I, what I think is the right way to frame it is to say, this doesn't tell you about the devil. If you were going to teach a class on the devil, Isaiah 14 probably shouldn't be the text that you go to, right? Because it is not clear that that's the connection that he's trying to make. What is clear is that he's trying to tell you what's about to happen to the king of Babylon and to all the, all the kings. Let's keep it in its context, and let's not make it mean something that we want it to mean or even that we've been taught to mean when the Bible just doesn't say that, Right? Now, how do we understand Satan? Uh, what do we know about him, and what don't we know? And this is going to go a little bit, little bit quicker. Uh, I've actually done this before, this has been, but this has been a long time ago, and so I want to kind of refresh it and go back through it a little bit. Um, here's some things that we do know. What, what does the name Satan mean? You know? The name Satan. Satan is actually the Hebrew word. You, you know Hebrew already? Satan is a Hebrew word, and we don't even translate it. We just bring it right on over, and we just call him Satan. All right? What it actually means is the accuser. Satan means accuser. It's a Hebrew word. It literally means accuser. Uh, Most likely, the proper way to understand it really would be that his name isn't Satan, but that his role is Satan. His role is accuser. And he's always referred to as that, or most commonly referred to as that. Um, And we know that from several places. Most prominently, probably in your mind, hopefully most prominently, well, maybe not hopefully, but most prominently probably in your mind is Job, right? You kind of think to yourself, well, what's he doing there, right? (laughs) Don't you? Who hasn't read the book of Job and gone like, "Why? why? Why is he? Why, why is he God who summons the sons of God in the heavenly council? And what, what business does Satan have being there in the heavenly council? Look, look at Job 1, 6 to 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it, and the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him in the earth. Now, now doesn't that bother you a little bit? Just be honest. Like it, it, It's unsettling just a tad that the Lord says to Satan, well, Have you stumbled across Job? I mean, he gives him his name. He just sort of like turns him in. Well, the first thought we have is, is, what is, what is Satan doing there? Well, his role tells you a lot about this whole scene. His role is one who is an accuser. What does he accuse? He accuses people. He accuses people of sin. And his job is much like a prosecuting attorney. Got it? Accuser. He's a prosecuting attorney. You commit a crime against the Most High, and what is his job? Bring you before the Lord Most High and say, have you seen this guy? You bless him, and so he praises you. But I promise you, you let me touch his life, and he'll curse you to your face. Just watch. And then we'll have a real crime. To bring up here in the court so he's a prosecuting attorney the da all right now he's called the devil often we know that do you know what devil means comes from a greek word diablos which also means slanderer or accuser so in the greek devil in the hebrew satan both of them mean exactly the same thing Prosecuting attorney, he's the DA, he accuses you. Jesus tells the disciples, he wants to, he demanded to have you so he could thresh you like wheat. So he could bring you before the courtroom of the Most High and explain your case, accuse you. Now we also have several other names for him in Scripture. Um, There are times where he's referred to as Beelzebul, uh, which basically means Lord of the Flies. Uh, we don't even have time to go into how Lord of the Flies comes up here. Uh, But Beelzebul, sometimes he's called the Prince of Demons, sometimes he's called the Prince of the Power of the Air. Um, uh, uh, Paul refers to him that way. Now, how did he come about? What was his, what's his origin story? How did the whole, there's obviously some part of Scripture that refers to a fall of Satan and and how some of this came about. What, what is happening here with, with Satan, his origin? Well, it's going to disappoint you, maybe, to know that the origin outside of—he's created by God because he's a created being—outside of that, we just don't know a whole lot. And that disappoints a lot of people when you say that because they're like, ah, oh, what? What? We we just don't know a whole lot. Well, how did Satan come to possess a snake in the garden and then tempt Adam and Eve? And why did he do that? And what ha- there has to be a whole backstory that happened before all of that that led him into a position where he would want to drag Adam and Eve before the throne of God and accuse them of their sin? Probably there was. Uh, Is that, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't don't know what exactly that was, and the Bible is really pretty silent on anything on many things that took place before us, before we came on the scene. There's a couple of places where he refers to things that happened as he created the world, again in the book of Job. The sons of God rejoiced at the creation. Uh, We see that in the book of Job. We see a couple of things like that, knowing that, yes, at one point they were created when the heavens and the earth were created. And then... There's a lot of silence before man comes onto the scene and they start in, Satan starts interacting with them and tempting us and all of that. Right? So there's, there's, there's not a whole lot. all right. I know that probably disappoints some. However, Scripture does refer to a couple of things. And, th- and this is where we're going to start getting into, ho- hopefully tying in, understanding who Satan is, what he does, why his casting out is actually really important. How we understand him being kicked out of heaven is tremendously important, and Isaiah is not the referent that we're talking about. He's cast out of heaven. Uh, he's, uh, Jesus describes him as being cast out when the disciples are casting out demons. That's the context. Um, you can see this in Luke. Uh, i got to find it on my verse handout here. Luke, um, good grief. Luke 10, 18. There it is, Uh, uh, page 4 of 6, Luke 10, 18, midway down. Uh, And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That context of, of, uh, he says something similar in Matthew, but that context is when he's transitioning the disciples to go and actually cast out demons in the name of Jesus. Um. We also see him kicked out of heaven in Revelation, uh, Revelation 12, 7, uh, 7 to 13. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, not, he's not called Lucifer. The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth, his angels thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Now, there's a lot of symbols in that that are... Super difficult, and when we unpack Revelation one day, we'll we'll talk about a lot of those. But the point is, I'm gonna I'm gonna set this timeline for you that I think might uh, maybe help. Um, In Revelation, you see the how how would how have they conquered here in Revelation? He says in the text, how how did they conquer? How did the saints conquer? What's that? By the blood of the Lamb. They conquered by the blood of the Lamb. So, this this scene is set after the resurrection of Christ. Okay, what happens to a prosecuting attorney who accuses the brethren day and night before the throne of God when Christ rises from the dead? He's out of a jaw. You understand? What place does he have now before the throne of God when the sins of God's people have been atoned for? The debt's been paid. The penalty has already been paid. So Christ's resurrection, and uh, he's ascended now, we see that in the previous passage, he ascends to to the the throne. Satan, the accuser, the, the prosecuting attorney, has no role in heaven anymore. So that job that we see him doing in Job, the job in Job, is no longer. That was his job. He did it day and night, it says. He accused the brethren day and night. And now that Christ has risen from the dead, there is no more need for a prosecuting attorney. The defense has spoken. The judge, jury, and executioner, God himself, Has declared his children not guilty. The trial is over. So the accuser, what's he left to do? Woe to you, O earth and sea. He knows his time is short. All right. Oh, he's accusing you, but not there. I I say there, You, you know what I mean. He he's he's no longer got a case. Before the Lord. There's no need to bring your case before God himself, like in Job. What he does now is accuse you. He doesn't love you. There's no way he'll forgive you now. All right. We'll take questions just a minute. Hold on just a second. Um, now, one thing we do know is obviously Satan is powerful, And clearly, he has an archangel-like responsibility, a role, or prestige. Maybe you want to call it that. He he, he clearly has an an archangel-like figure. How do we know that? Because Revelation tells us the devil and his angels. Well, if Michael and his angels, Michael we would refer to as an archangel, if Michael and his angels fight against the devil and his angels then we would see Satan as something akin to what Michael is, at least in terms of power. Um, we also know that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So maybe somebody read Corinthians, the Corinthians passage here, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, where Paul dis- calls him disguising himself as an angel of light, meaning disguising himself as a messenger of truth. That's what he's really trying to say. Maybe somebody read that and then, I don't know, went back into Light Bearer in Isaiah and attributed that to him, I don't know. All right. So we also know that his role and activity today, he is the God of this world. By that, Paul does not mean, by the way, that he has he is all powerful when it comes to this world. That's not what he means. He means that all false worship, any worship that is not directed towards God, is ultimately directed towards Satan, whether they know it or not. So it, 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 in most circles, worship today exists, if it's not in a church you know, to God, uh, worship exists to the government, the beast, um, bowing down and, and uh, wanting the beast to succeed. You, you see these news articles of people whose candidate doesn't win, or whose candidate is up for a vote, and they'll do anything and everything to make sure that they win, including do all kinds of fraudulent activity, go to jail. Uh, they'll do all kinds of things if their candidate doesn't win in reaction. That tra- the translation of that is, that's their God. That, that's what that means, right? That is your God. You are willing to die for him. You are willing to go to jail for him. You're willing to go to do any great lengths to do all kinds of corruptible things, for him, that is your God, okay? So, uh, when, when he says the God of this world, he means anything that's not worship of Christ is worshiping Satan ultimately. Whether they put his face on it or not, that's what it ultimately is. All right. Um, he clearly reigns over a hierarchy of, we'll call them malignant spirits, demonic spirits, and, um, we see that, obviously, in the Revelation passage. The devil and his angels, um, he clearly has some authority and control. We see that in Paul, talking about the, um, the uh, uh, spiritual armor, the armor of God. Uh, Jesus even makes reference to this, that Satan is, in some way, commanding uh, these demonic forces. We also know him as a tempter. He is a tempter in 1 Corinthians 7, 4-5. All right, He is a tempter. He uh, deceives, he falsifies and he counterfeits, he deceives, he falsifies, he counterfeits. see that in copious passages throughout the New Testament. He seeks to destroy, obviously not just in the passages that are mentioned here, but also in threshing the disciples like wheat. He wants to tear down and destroy uh, God's people. has no case before the throne of God anymore because of Christ and his work but he has come down to the earth in great fury. He knows that his time is short and seeks to devour um, all of God's children in terms of uh, all the things we've talked about. Uh, He fights against believers and against the church. Now, a couple of myths here that I want to cover just right here at the end. Um, Believe it or not, he is not the all the cause of your sin. The, the devil made me do it is not going to work. He is not the cause of all of our sin. Uh, you, you, you'd like to think that, but but listen to how James describes your temptation. Uh, now, d- don't get me wrong. The New Testament does say, he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Okay, that's true. But he's not the only cause of your sin. Uh, let no one say when he is tempted I am being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by the devil wait, what does that say? by his own desire ah then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and when sin is fully grown it brings forth death so James is not letting you off the hook at all and saying, uh, your own flesh leads you into sin and temptation. You're drawn away by your own desires. the 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 battle of the Christian life is a desire battle. Which desire is going to win? Right. the 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 deal now is be, you've had you were born with a fleshly desire. No one had to teach my children how to be mean to one another at all. Just didn't never. They never had to be taught how to do that. They were born that way. All right? Nor steal, nor list the things. No one had to teach you those things. You knew those things already. Your desires lead you that way, into transgressing the law of God, as it were. What, What has happened now in Christ, if you are in Christ, you have been given a competing desire. Now it is possible also to please God. Before faith, it was not possible to please God. It was impossible to please God. I don't care how many times you donated to goodwill, you still were not pleasing God if you're not a Christian. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? Two, two people can do the same thing. One can, Both can donate all their possessions to the poor, and one is pleasing to God and one is not, because one is a Christian and one is not. So Paul says. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So, You have been given a competing desire now that will actually do battle with the flesh. The one that wins is the one you feed more. Period. All right. Yeah. Um, Satan and his angels, also we know, are not going to be the rulers of hell or the lake of fire. This is also another common myth. We get, you know, somebody goes to hell and, and you see this in every hell house you do around Halloween. If you've ever done one, you've ever walked through these things, Every time you get to the end, and the people that died, they're in hell, and Satan is there and his demons and they're marching up and down and they're kind of like cracking whips over these people and, and that's not true. That's not even what the Bible says. Revelation twenty ten. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur with a beast and the false prophet where and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever right there with all the people that follow being tortured so that being said what is the role of angelic beings ministering spirits they have some role in ministering to people the nations governments entities so if that's the case, then what do demonic spirits do? They, we might want to call it reverse minister, they anti-minister to people, governments, and entities. So in some ways, you could look at the judgments that are going on in Isaiah and say, judgment against Babylon, against Cush, against is also judgment ultimately against Satan himself, right? So it's not as though the judgment that happens to Babylon is different than judgment against Satan. It's, it's just not what he's talking about, properly speaking. What he's talking about there is, is Babylon. And, and, and I think the point of all that is really just to say, put your eyes on the text of Scripture. And if we say, look, we're people of the book. We want to be people that are driven by God's Word. Making the text say something that doesn't Holding on to an interpretation we've had, maybe even since the very beginning, when the Bible doesn't actually bear that out, is not being a person driven by God's Word. Being a person driven by what somebody else told you, one point or another. Let's let's look at the book. Let's say, that, well, this is what it says. Now, meaning. We find out later, yeah, yeah, this is actually exactly what happened to Satan, ironically. It happened also to the king of Babylon. Maybe we find that out one day in, in the great beyond in heaven and at the Lord's side, and maybe we, we learn those things and we go, well, great. But I'm not going to hold fast to that interpretation when the Bible just does not warrant it. It doesn't actually give me those words. Does that, that make sense? And, and Millie, I hope I answered your question. Did I? Does it make a little bit more sense, a little bit clearer? Okay, good, okay, good. Questions? Here in the last maybe couple minutes, got Um, maybe has some eschatological meaning. Is a broad category. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, look, I, I, um, I don't, I don't think so. I think every bit of evidence that I get out of that text, he is referring to a king who sat on a throne in Babylon. Was he influenced by the devil? Sure. There's no question about that. But is he talking about Satan? No. There's zero evidence in there. The, the one little thing that sometimes people say is like, is the word heaven in there. fell from heaven. And I mean... He, he's, in, he's going on to describe how he exalted himself above all of creation, which is where the heavens are. It's, that's why he's saying it. Go ahead. I think is your question, do they, do they, uh, when they teach, you, you have to do, you have to perform when they don't realize Christ has already won the victory? Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 Well, I, I think um, I, I'm a, f- I'm a fond of the MacArthur quote where he said, uh, if you, if you think you can lose your salvation, but that you haven't already, then you're, it's the height of arrogance, you know, to think that you have to do and perform and and be, and that Christ's death and his atonement was not sufficient for me um, to declare me not guilty, but I have to, you know, my performance is what makes the difference, uh, and you think that, you know, I I could potentially lose my salvation, you know, but that you haven't already. (laughs) you, You don't understand yourself very well. You don't you're not looking carefully enough at the sin that lies in your own heart. If that was the case, Christ's atonement would be really pretty meaningless, you know, ultimately for us if if we could lose that. You know, it's declared. When he said, it is finished. Actually, a (laughs) minute. You know, go figure. (laughs) Right, 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 right. That passage in Revelation, I think when it's rightly understood, is beautiful. Because they're telling you, uh, John, the, the angels when they're saying this, they're telling you the battle has been won. Satan's role before the Lord is done. He no longer has a job. He's not on the payroll anymore. And... That is a really beautiful picture. It's followed by, well, don't celebrate too much right now (laughs) because (laughs) he's come down to you in great fury because he knows that his time is short. So there is a window where it's going to be very painful for you, but realize that ultimately he has no job and the reason that he's doing what he's doing is because he's been fired. Really beautiful picture. All right. Maybe we've our brains are taxed for tonight. Let's uh let's pray. And let's go, Heavenly Father. We we thank you for an opportunity to just look deeply at your word, and, and I pray that the dividends paid here is not just in in some academic exercise or just you know wanting to bash some you know thought that we've had for some time, but but really to understand rightly what we're facing. That we are facing an adversary, who is vicious, and mean, and we need help to def- defend against, but also that Christ has won the battle and the war. It's over, and his time is short, and our time on this earth may be short, too, but our time for eternity at Christ's side is is a long time. And it's going to be enduring, and it's something to look forward to and, and hope in. And that is just incredibly encouraging. It's encouraging to me. I hope it's encouraging to everyone here. But it is, uh, it's our joy. And I pray that you help that to sink into our, our hearts. That we would believe in those sins that we commit. That we would see that they have no eternal merit that we have been declared not guilty, and yet you have called us to strive for holiness. You have put your spirit within us to resist the schemes of the devil, to resist the desires of our own flesh, and to pursue the desires that you have given us in the ways that you have given them to us. And so I pray that would be our heartbeat. Tonight, tomorrow, And for the rest of our lives, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.